Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome today. I'm Mark Yacono, your host of Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the global leader in legal search and legal consulting. I'm a managing director in Major Lindsay in Africa's Transform Advisory Services Group. And I'm pleased to have a very unique and accomplished guest today, Misty Burmeister. Um, I first met Misty about 12 years ago in a hotel. She was having breakfast and she was kind enough to say that my suit actually fit well, which I felt great about because I had just lost a bunch of weight. And I followed Misty ever since, and she is a truly a remarkably accomplished person. In the old days, you might have referred to her as an executive coach, but that really doesn't define what she does. She likes to describe herself as someone who has companies, helps companies have difficult conversations and get to truth and get to a point of authenticity. And she likes to think of herself and her clients do think of her as creating safe spaces for honest conversation. Her clients include many major corporations, including Johnson & Johnson and the United States Navy, among others. She's the author of four books, including the bestseller from Bloomers to Bloggers. She's given TED Talks, been on NPR, been in the Huffington Post. And that isn't even the um, tip of the iceberg with Miss Misty. She's an enormously accomplished person. Misty, welcome. You're, you're, I'm happy to have you share anything else you'd like to tell the group because you could, you, your credentials are limited, limitless, but we, um, we're delighted, really delighted to have you. Mark, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm, I, if there's one thing I would add, it's that I'm so grateful that you have the courage to put on a podcast as remarkable as this. So I'm just thankful to be here. Well, that's very kind of you. Um, as I've said on other podcasts for me, this is both a cause and a labor of love. I'm a definite believer in advocacy for mental health and mental wellness. Um, I passionately believe people who suffer from mental illness shouldn't be stigmatized. And that's a product of both my worldview and own experience. The conversation Misty and I are going to have today, I think is really appropriate for the time we're in. It's about how to create a leadership mentality and a leadership style that, that, that fosters an emotionally healthy workplace. You know, traditionally, we thought of the workplace as being within four walls and people being together. Now we increasingly think of the workplace as being everywhere and anywhere and people working together, but not physically together. The stress of the pandemic, we've seen it with our own people, we see it with our clients and we see it with society as a, as a whole is under stress. And it's more important than ever that leaders find ways to create an environment where people can thrive. And that's really what Misty and I plan to talk about today. She certainly has a lot of experience doing that and um, so much expertise to, um, to, to share. So Misty, thanks for engaging in the conversation. Um, it's hard to have this conversation in a linear way, but can we start sort of at a, a hot air balloon level of what are the elements of an emo emotionally healthy workplace that enables people to do their best work? What are some like keystone attributes 
You know, I love Mark, the, the story, the, the, the way that you phrased up your question originally. I think it's the way a lot of, um, an email that you sent to me, that a lot of leaders ask the question this way, how do leaders create an, a healthy and emotionally healthy culture? You know, that will provide team members with opportunities to grow, permission to fail, and uh, the ability to support each other. And every time I hear this sort of question, my first go-to is, actually, it is, it is those things, helping people to grow, uh, helping them to fail, not just giving them permission to fail, but literally helping them to fail, and also giving them the resources, both, you know, tactical resources, as well as uh, resources that are more com computer um, or training oriented, giving them the resources to help each other. So when you do those three things, you, your net outcome is a healthy company. It's a byproduct of behaviors. It is, yeah. And well, so the, you're, go ahead. The reason I, 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 the reason I really honed in on this topic is there's a debate going on in law. Um, some of it's really directed toward big law, the major law firms and how they're gonna be able to foster culture, loyalty, growth, and investment in associates and younger attorneys when they're not going to be in that environment that people are used to, where they're in the office, where they're meeting with a partner, sitting down and going through work products side by side. So I think, you know, for me, the, the, the interesting question is, how are we gonna do exactly what you said? Demonstrate those behaviors, get that outcome, when there's a huge element of what we do that's no longer going to be side by side. Well, Mark, I think first we have to look at whether we're in a virtual setting or whether we're in an in-person setting, the virtual setting becomes very similar very quickly to that in-person setting in terms of their ability to be vulnerable, their ability to uh, push the envelope to create, uh, to innovate, to grow inside their career, not only themselves, but also inside helping the company to grow. Is that happening in in-person setting first? Was it for your organization? And if it's not, then you have to kind of come back a, a bigger step. Because I don't, I think the question that you're asking, Mark, for a lot of our listeners really is bigger than just in a virtual setting. How do we do it to begin with? And you know, what I found inside of company cultures where, where there's strong, strong adherence to helping and supporting each other and in innovation, is there is a clear, there are clear roles. There are, there's clear goals. There's, so direction is clear. There's a plenty of resources, ways in which to get the work done. So if you don't know how to have a difficult conversation, there's a resource to, to get that. Um, there's lots of feedback inside of these kind of cultures and there's a willingness to engage in, in critical conversations. The ones of course that are weaker in their um, company cultures, they lack those. I mean, it's just that quickly. It's they lack their clear goals. So one question you're going to ask yourself is like, does everybody kind of know where we're going? What does success look like? And some leaders will say, yes, I've told them. Well, when's the last time you told them? Cause we forget things very quickly. So it's continuous communication around direction, around goals and roles, around direction in terms of growth for yourself, for each individual um, on the team. I think that's an interesting, uh, uh, some really interesting points you raise. Um, because there, to me, it may not be a real dichotomy, but there are kind of two sort of fault lines. 
one fault line is what's your goal as an employee like or an associate do you want to make partner the other goal out there is what does the firm want to be what's the strategy in the market what kind of lawyers and and an attitude does it want to bring to practicing law differently in an ever-changing world and what i'm really interested in is for an emotionally healthy place where people can succeed they really probably need to understand both right yeah you know you said something that's really important mark you said make partner which is i think what this ideology needs to be blown up this uh, this is what the goal is needs to be blown up i want to share with you something that i that i that i always look at with clients and that is what gets rewarded gets repeated what gets rewarded gets repeated what gets rewarded gets repeated so if if what you're rewarding is just somebody making it to partner which means they worked a gazillion hours and you know sacrifice their entire life just so they can make partner that's what's going to get repeated and the problem with that is it's not sustainable the problem with that is it actually leads to mental health issues and or exacerbates mental health uh, issues and um and as a result we're less productive we're less engaged we're, so if we don't look at the emotional component of work you know a lot of leaders say we are um a lot of people in general the ideology we subscribe to as a human nature um, is that we are we are uh, thinking beings that have emotions sometimes right and in reality we're emotional beings that think, we think sometimes right right so if we never address the emotions that are happening they're gonna just run the organization run the team decrease or increase greatly uh, productivity and um, of course bottom line results well, and I think the data is pretty overwhelming. The, the ABA Hazleton study that was done a few years back and the recent study that ALM did last year show that there is a pretty remarkably high prevalence of mental health issues and substance abuse issues. Um, and, and to my surprise, frankly, when I dug, started to dig into this, it's not for older lawyers. It's actually for lawyers younger, 10 years and out, lawyers who are on that path. And, you know, I was, I was thinking recently um, about something. Um, I was actually reading Atomic Habits by James Clear. And he was saying, you know, setting the goal sometimes is counterproductive. Defining the vision of who you want to be helps you build the habits to be that person. And that will help you achieve that goal. It sounds like you're expressing a very similar sentiment. If it's a sterile goal, it's almost like a math equation work seven days a week work 18 hours a day build six gazillion hours don't miss deadlines make partner at the end of the day you haven't even defined what you think it means to make partner other than you just you know it's like finishing a spartan race right or a tough mutter you <laughs> you have gotten to the race you're money and dirty but did you come are you who you want to be at the end of that well, and so I think that's a great analogy too. the Spartan race is what most people that are doing the Spartan races know why they're doing it. They want to challenge themselves. They want to be able to, you know, check that off the bucket list item. That is um, the challenge of the physicality of it is something that's really important to them. If you ask any Spartan racer, marathoner, Ironman person, Iron Woman person, um, or even big swim uh, swimmers, like that's one of the things I do is swim. Um, you ask any of them, why? 
they have a clear why. You ask most lawyers why, they had a clear why. They once. lost it. Yeah, once they did. Yeah, they had it. And then they lose it because they're just trying to fit into a model. I'll share with you a quick story. It's an um, analogy, actually, one of my favorites right now. Um, elephants, in order to make elephants so that you can have them um, in close proximity to human beings so you can show them off at zoos and so forth. One of the practices of elephant herders, I don't know what they're actually called, so forgive that, um, but elephant herders is when they're little baby elephants, they put a post in the ground, put a little tiny um, uh, chain around it, and it can't pull that chain. It tries and it tries and it tries, but it just can't break it. And eventually it stops trying to break the chain. Now it becomes a big elephant. It could easily rip that chain right out of the ground, but it never tries. It never tries to rip. Why? Because it doesn't believe that it can. And the same thing is true regardless of what industry it is. Uh, we are taught throughout our entire lives from being a child to being in school to coming into the workforce. We need permission to do the thing that we're already so good at. We need, the, we need the mirroring too, right? We need the permission to release the chains. Problem is, is most leaders don't see that those are just chains that are holding somebody back. They just assume that they just don't want to give their best. They don't want to push hard. Um, and they put more pressure on rather than helping them to, to see the chains and step into their potential. And the more we work on stepping into potential, the higher the happiness, the higher the... Um, the engagement, the higher the productivity, all the things we want in business. So as I listen to you, I, I, I kind of think through and I look back over a 30 plus year career and I look at people who've been in the legal industry for a long time. And one of the analogies that I use when I talk to people about how they retain people is that if you take people of all different personality types, all different backgrounds, and the only universal given is they're talented and they're bright and they're engaging and at some point in their life, they're young. And you take those people and you force them through a funnel so that as they get to the end of the funnel, you squeeze and compress them and their circulation's not there and they're numb. What you've done is you, you, you've put people through a process that doesn't allow the best parts of them to deliver the best parts of them. Because you've tried to squeeze them through this funnel, which is painful, and at the end result, the, the stress emotionally and physically of living in that altered reality, wearing that armor, as some people would say when you're trying to conform as opposed to be the person you're, you're not, or you're masking who your true self is, for, for, for any number of reasons that, that, that people feel sometimes they have to do that. But that in itself is just so detrimental to feeling good and thriving. Yeah, you know, and I do it all the time, Mark. I catch myself doing, I studied this because I need it for myself also. And I do, I will, try, I will, I will bend myself to try to fit in. And we, you and I have talked a little bit through email about this sort of um, isolation epidemic, not spoken in quite those words, but one of the great challenges in our current experience is that we're very isolated. Well, you know, the, the antidote to that is connection. Well, the 
um, the antithesis of connection is trying to fit in. Now this is Brene Brown, Dr. Brene Brown's work also. Um, when we're trying to fit in, we can't be who we really are, then we weaken ourselves. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, I'm saying all of this because this takes practice. This is not an overnight thing and it's not like it's, it's just gonna happen overnight. It's a, there are several practices that leaders can engage in themselves that will not only bring themselves a, a greater sense of connection within, but will also teach the folks around them how to do it. You know, that's, that's, that's such a fascinating point, and it's, it, it mirrors my own life experience um, so closely, it's, it's almost eerie. And one of the things that I always think about is how does a leader who grew up with perceptions of what leadership should be and what good behavior for leaders should be begin to unlock the myths that support that, that sort of stereotype so that people can be authentic. You know, the, the television is, is often worthwhile and often worthless, but you know, in all the medical shows over the years, they show these struggling residents, right, who are working all these hours a day and the attendings are always like, well, you know, suck it up. When I was a, when I was a young resident, I worked 48 hours, 72 hours a day. Well, we know now that people who work 72 hours a day have emotional issues, they have cognitive functioning issues, and they make errors because that's not, you know, that's not sustainable. Well, if you look at kind of, you know, leadership, not only in law, but other places, it, it, there's, there's this myth sometimes that it has to be perpetuated on the adversative system. You know, this, this myth that we have to break everybody to build them, and in fact, my view is sometimes we just leave them broken and, and they don't get built up. So how do, how, how do you help leaders who need and want to have a greater awareness that that is not a pattern of leadership development that will keep their organization high performing, diverse, thriving? Where do you start with leaders? Yeah, first of all, I want to call out what you're what you're referring to here as like the common way. How do you break them of the common way? I forget the exact word you use there, but um, I want to call that out. What is that? Well, that is sort of a command and control mindset. My job is to make them do what they need to get done. I'm responsible for what they do. And if they're not performing at the right level, I look bad. So I've got to make them I got to push them, right? That's kind of the model of what is taught in society. It's an old model. It desperately not just needs to, but has to uh, shift in this, in this pandemic. It must, you can't lead like that. You, you will lose your team. You also used a word called retention, which I hate this word retention. I understand it's a metric, but retention takes care of itself when you are engaging the folks on your team. So if we're talking about command and control, the flip side of command and control is to motivate and mentor. And most leaders will say to me, I pay them to do a job. Do you hear that that more often than you'd care to? Yeah, I do. I do. Yes. I pay them to do a job, to do this job. They're well-skilled. Why aren't they doing what they came here to do all the time? And you just ask a few questions about their leadership 
and they'll again react with that, which just lets you know, like, what is their understanding of leadership? What is their, what are their models? Like I used to speak on a lot, a little bit still on generational conflict. I call it now generational amnesia um, for a very good reason. We've just- that makes perfect know, sense. Yeah, we just forget what we've come through and then we just repeat old what we've been taught. So the question is for leaders who care to make a shift is to really get clear on what is your current leadership model. And you'd only know that if you ask for feedback, which is one of, one of the most brave thing, things I think leaders do. So many leaders want to understand how to give feedback and they don't understand that the better they get at receiving it, the better they'll get at giving it. And, and that, that willingness and that ability to engage effectively in crucial conversations sets leaders, effectiveness in leaders goes way off the charts when they can do that but most don't want to deal with the emotions just we're talking about a mental health podcast right most leaders don't want to deal with emotions because they've had no modeling for it if you look at the research globally speaking we have access to only three emotions said simply mad sad and glad but yet we experience a whole array of emotions but if we never understand them and can't help our team to work through them by 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 being honest about it, by being transparent, by being willing um, to not be perfect, um, then we can't, we can't use that energy, which is emotion, and emotion is energy in motion. So whether it's positive or perceivably negative, we can't use the energy of it if we don't give it a place to go, if we don't name it, if we don't work with the emotion. I, I can't tell you, this is a, there's no perfect time than right now in the midst of this political situation, in the midst of this pandemic, to deepen trust, to deepen engagement, to have productivity soar. There's no better time because disruption creates discomfort. And when you deal with the discomforts effectively, it, it drives all the things that we want to see. Real quick, Mark, I, there's a company that's called Coinbase. Um, I forget where they're out of, but they just a couple of weeks ago um, made an agreement to all of their employees, thousands of employees. Hey, if you want to, if you don't want to agree to this, we're not allowed to ever talk about politics in this office, in this workspace, you're not allowed to have any conversations. That's the new rule. And if you don't like it, we'll give you a severance package. We'll, um, we'll let you retire early. The lengths that some teams and companies are willing to go to to avoid difficult conversations is remarkable. I just imagine what would happen for that team and for that company if they just taught their team and themselves really how to engage healthfully in meaningful conversations. That is put your money there and watch your team soar together because it doesn't matter our differences are very small. They're very small. Our similarities are much bigger. If we can learn to focus and listen, and I can go on and on, Mark, I'll pause. <laughs> you, you could, and it's good stuff. Although one funny thing that came to mind, um, you talk about uh, leaders getting feedback. I'm, I warn people that they may have the same reaction I did as a leader when I got my first 360 review, which is I heard it, and then I promptly walked over to the wastebasket and vomited. Uh -huh. Because, well, there was some absurdly um, um, nice things said. There were a lot of absurdly um, interesting and, and revelatory moments <laughs> there that um, um, 
you you don't expect although ultimately you know where you where you get to a point is so you sit down with someone you trust and you go through them and they say look that person obviously is biased in favor of you to the point where they're not thinking these people have an axe to grind but here are the people here's the here are the people within parameters who all have a common theme and that's what you should pick up on which it was fascinating i was lucky that i had a really high performing employee who is leaving to join a client. And I said, would you meet with me and go through these results? And she said, yes. And I, she you know, pretty much could tell who, who, who was who from the results because she knew our team so much. She's like, you know, discount this and this, but look at these th three things. These are things I've even told you. Those three or four things come from a big percentage of the people. And it was, it, you know, it was eye-opening. It really was. It was, it, it, it was eye-opening, but it wasn't easy. And I think that, you know, leaders, leaders don't want to be uncomfortable in, in a lot of ways with the people they lead. They may want to be uncomfortable in how they attack the market, but not necessarily with the people they lead. But then you, you, you hit on something else, which I think is really, really interesting, which is, well, a couple of things. You said a lot. Um, a couple of things, this, 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 this idea that we have far more in common than we, we have differences at the same time that when we watch the news, when we listen to the political climate, when we listen to people speak, they talk about the deep divides and polarization, which are, you know, honestly, we know we have some deep divides on certain issues many issues <laughs> can you explain to me in the context of this sort of polarized environment that we're either living in or we think we're living in how we have more in common than we than than we have differences i got a story for you oh i, knew I got a story for you it's a great great story and i do want to come back to this um to this feedback thing, because I think it's really important, but I want to share a story based on your question. I was in the back country, I was on the Appalachian Trail. This is just a few weeks ago. And normally this does not happen. This is very rare uh, in general. I've only done, I've only been back country a total of maybe 60 times over the last two years. Um, but I've talked to a lot of other people who have through hiked the entire thing. And anyway, long story short, uh, my wife and I were back country and our food bag got stolen. We're two nights in, we still got two nights to go and we've got no food. That's the long story short. Now, a lot of angels showed up and gave us food, their food. And we had plenty of everything that we needed and most of the things that we wanted at the end. Now I'm sitting there over dinner across the um, picnic table from a gentleman who is a Vietnam vet and uh, he shared some of his food with me. So we're sitting there, we're chatting and he pulls out his phone and he, um, and he pulls up a meme. Now this meme, Mark, not, not a good meme uh, about a president that he is not in support of, okay? Now it happens to be much more of a candidate that I would be interested in, right? I would be interested in this candidate making it into the White House in this particular time frame in the history of our world. And he's got a negative, a negative impression of him. And I thought two things simultaneously. One is I wanna give him a piece of my mind and then the second one, because I thought that was, he just assumed that I was in favor of his same candidate. The second thought I had was, I wonder like, why does he support this other candidate so much? And 
So I leaned into that curiosity. And what I learned, Mark, which was only made possible because I was willing to lean in and listen and ask questions to understand him. What I learned was that he, his grandchildren, his children are struggling with his grandchildren right now in terms of being able to make a, enough money to support the family. Both parents have to work and it's really tough. So he's watching his family struggle, his children struggle. And he believes, just like we all get our own belief systems around this political candidate can solve this problem. You know, he remembers a time when just one parent had to work him and he was able to su supply everything that was needed for his family he wants that time to come back again and he and so he's bought into that this particular candidate uh for presidency can make that happen so that his children don't have to suffer anymore i could relate to that i could relate to that 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 deep desire to have things go well for the people that i love and I do the same thing. I grab a hold of ideology and um, storylines that support my belief that that's going to happen that way. It's not that he's right or that I'm right. It's that we both have the same things and we're both believing different storylines. And so do I think mine is uh, accurate? Of course. But I had a chance to really create a connection with this man because I didn't judge him. I just listened. And it's a practice for me. So I would say during this pandemic, if you want to get really great, excellent, superb at one skill, it's listening. And truly, without this... Um, without this rebuttal, you know, the little voices are going... And I had to say to myself, I, I call it listened... Um, to the third, right? Listen, listen, listen. And then I repeat it. Listen, 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 when I've got all the rebuttals going on so that I can really hear what it is they're trying to say. When you lean in like that and you create connection with people, it doesn't matter what our differences are. What matters is that we're caring for each other and hearing each other. That is um, a really unique take on navigating through um, a world where so many of us have so many different views. Understanding each other's differences in perspective is really an important piece to creating a workplace where we have tolerance for each other. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yes. Okay. How do we get to a, a culture that's acceptance, accepting of differences and how do we help people evolve out of um, mindsets that are opposed to, 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 to a safe, diverse, engaged um, mosaic of a, of a team, which is what research shows is when you have a diverse team and, and a team from different backgrounds, different perspectives, different sexual preferences or orientation preferences is, is really the wrong word, um, that you end up having you know, more energy, more, more creative thought. So how, how do we work through this? I think that we've got to focus on the bigger issue, not the how it's done. I think we have to look at what to refocus our teams. So we're talking about companies and leaders, right? So not just everywhere and everything, just to focus the conversation. Teams and leaders are ultimately responsible for building uh, 
building opportunities for their employees to thrive, as well as making sure then, of course, that the customers are well taken care of. These two things feed each other. You feed the employee, they feed the customer. You feed the employee, they feed the customer, the customer feads you. This is kind of like a tri the triangle effect, if you will. A lot of companies just focus on only the customer. Um, but the, the bigger point here is that we're striving, what are we trying to achieve inside this organization? What really matters? And then how do we get there? One of the questions that comes up often is, well, how we get there is our internal customer needs to look a little bit more like our external customer. Our what diversity is all about, right? Our um, so the business case for this, our employees need to look and sound and feel a little bit more like, a lot more like the customers who pay the bills. So how do we do that? And it, it has to, you use the word culture, which I think is so big. It's one of the reasons I, one of the reasons I don't like talking about cultures because it's so big and it's, that's hard. But when you just talk about how does one leader do this? How does one leader create this sort of um, environment where people can have their voices heard and we can still accomplish stuff together. We don't all have to believe that abortion is right or wrong in order to achieve something, uh, in order to, as Menlo Innovations calls it, um, uh, oh gosh, their, their, uh, their mission is to end human suffering as it pertains to software. That is a mission that pulls their team in. And Menlo Innovation is out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and they're celebrated for their culture. Rich Sheridan's the CEO and co-founder of that company. I've had the privilege of interviewing them a couple of times and also um, having several just personal conversations. So a remarkable person in that organization, their goal is to create software that ends human suffering. Okay, that's exciting. All of our other beliefs around what's right and what's wrong are all a part of the mix that allows for the success of that. And so the, again, the focus, the question that you're asking, I think is a, it needs to be asked differently. So the question I'm hearing you ask is, how do we um, have conversations so that everybody has the same belief around um, whether or not people of different uh, sexual orientation or uh, all the different shades of our skin color can thrive inside of an organization. And as a result of that, you know, the business case is again, that the customer wants to do more work with you because we do business with people we know, like, and trust. Knowing, liking, and trusting is deepened when we feel a sense of commonality. So there's a real business case for that. Um, but the question needs to be a lot different. How do we create an environment where people feel safe to speak their mind? to share what's on their heart, regardless of what it is? How do we create that sort of safe space where people can speak up for what they believe in? And that has a lot to do with emotions and a really competent leader can facilitate those sort of conversations and allow for people, people to share their opinions without being um, judged and put down. That's a great point. And, and I was recently talking to um, the leader of an, of, of in a big company of an innovation group. And she had a really interesting perspective as she moved out of the realm of the operating companies. And it was that very often decisions were made about who fit the central casting role of the leader. And that leader may or may not actually know what they're doing about that subject matter. And that there at times was almost an institutional 
bias against reaching out to people in the organization who actually did know about that subject matter so that they could manage for a more informed point of view. And her thesis was the, the, the implications of that are twofold. That leader never becomes as effective as they should be because they're not as informed as they should be. And the people with knowledge and things to contribute to, to, to that business unit or their strategic objectives aren't getting the opportunities to use those talents and, and, and they're, they're, they're sort of being wasted. And so the idea is, you know, being in a, in a leadership environment where you can ask for help and you can hear different perspectives and you can consider them is a really healthy way to make sure you have good product development and it's also to make sure that a space, a space shuttle doesn't explode because there was a design flaw that someone was too scared to communicate, which as we know happened while I was in law school watching it on television with a Challenger disaster. Um, we know that, but then where are the boundaries between working towards that goal and creating a safe space to, to, to pursue that goal and the boundaries about what's acceptable and unacceptable behavior? A lot of the time what I see leaders do is they are, they, they actually avoid the conversations. So you talked about, you're talking about issues that are oftentimes simply avoided. We don't want to talk about, uh, the fact that our team isn't working together because people are gossiping and so forth. Or, um, no, I think ultimately, Mark, we have to be willing as leaders to call out uh, elephants in rooms. And some of the elephants are the way people are treated. And the best and most powerful leaders I've ever met, they don't just sit there and let people be mistreated they take a stand for it. and the greatest cultures reward that effort. It is very difficult, Mark, I'm gonna say this as strongly as I can. Most leaders want their employees to show up, be self-motivated, um, be willing to take criticism, be, they, they want them to, to do all of these um, almost superhuman things without permission to fail without uh, it, like an oak. So we're asking people to do the things that really matter to them, but then we won't go to the hard places with them. So you want your employees, your team to bring their full self, which is including the color of their skin, which is including the, um, their, their whole background. You want them to bring their full self so that they can, so that your company can be a great place to work. But, but then you don't help them to actually get there. It brings me back to um, something I heard a long time ago. Um, my mother was in public relations and in, 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 in communications. She was the vice president of the Better Bus Business Bureau in Buffalo. And um, she worked closely with one of the local television, television stations, which was owned by Capital Cities Communications, which is now really, you know, Disney. Cap Cities bought, ABC bought Cap Cities and then ultimately it morphed into Disney. The legendary CEO and chairman of Capital Cities, Thomas Murphy, once said, 
by, will, by being willing to sit in a room and have the deepest and most divisive conversations is how you get to the best ideas and to agreement. And it kind of strikes me that that sums up what we've been talking about in, in some ways. Absolutely is, yeah. But that is a skill set that requires empathy. It requires understanding. You know, we talked a minute ago about, um, you know, the feedback that you received that had you go to the trash can. And, uh, and then the, you know, the, the direction that you went to understand the feedback a little bit better. I think that the physiological effect of feedback is no different than the physiological effect of having difficult conversations overall. And so what does that literally mean? There's a sense of threat. There's, I call it the physiology of feedback, right? Our palms start to sweat. Our, 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 um, our, our armpits start to sweat. Our heart starts to race. We can't think as well when all these things are going on. And the problem isn't that. The problem is, is that we think that that's a bad thing. So whether we're engaging in a difficult conversation that is around politics or any number of things that are currently a challenge right now that people don't wanna talk about, like what's happening with the bottom line of the business, um, how are we actually doing? Are we gonna be able to sustain this business? Employees are asking like never before, is my job gonna be around in six months? Do we have enough? And employers just think, just keep working, right? So for us to be able to engage in this conversation, we've got to, we've got to reframe that reactivity that we are having and that our teams are having. So that physiology that naturally happens is something happens and then we start to tell ourselves a story about what's happening, right? You've had this, I'm sure, happen a million and one times for you. I know I have it all the time. So it kicks off a story that if we're not, if we don't go back and course correct and make sure that that story is accurate, then we run with it as if it is. And it's, our stories are never as good as the actual facts. So this is where I think, again, leaders who understand how to lean into difficult conversations get to clarify the data, the facts versus the feelings. What are the emotions versus what are the facts? And leaders who are able to lean into that and ask those questions are the ones who facilitate really great conversations and, again, deepen relationships to allow for these conversations to um, to help our companies succeed at a level, you know, Mark, companies today are being, um, in terms of uh, mergers and acquisitions, today, it used to be only that they looked at how much money is in the business, how many resources does the business have, um, hang on just a second, I've got this thing, um, it just popped up on my computer, uh, anyway, they used to ask just these questions around what are the resources the business has, um, to determine whether or not it's a viable business to purchase. Well, today we're also looking strongly uh, at what is the culture? Do people feel valued? You know, before uh, Salesforce purchases a company, they're looking at what, are the, what is the current culture? Is that is where a lot of the money is going with in terms of purchasing um, companies? And, and so I think we can't overlook this, this component, this willingness to to, to teach your team how to listen to each other. We're almost at the end of our time, but you, you raised something really that just popped into my head about leaders really teaching their team how to listen to each other and leaders having to be willing to give actual facts and data. It strikes me that there is a social compact there though, which is employees have to be motivated to ask questions too. 
it's not just management has to do more. It's that employees have to have some proactive ownership and being engaged, inquisitive, and actually listening when they hear facts. It's it's not a one way street. Is that is that a fair observation or? Absolutely, and I want to bring you back to the analogy of the elephant, right? So, the the elephant breaking the chain. So it's assumed that you go along to get along, especially in law firms. You know, somebody's got seniority to you. Your job is to go along to get along, not to be inquisitive, not to ask questions, not to challenge the status quo. So you're talking about something I think is really important. If you are the team member, you are the employee, you know, what is your responsibility in this? And I, I, I would say, Mark, it, it, it is to challenge the status quo, is willingness to have your voice heard, is, uh, is the willingness to consider another person's, I mean, all the things that we've talked about for leaders, this is absolutely for, for all people, but, but I would say if you're in a leadership position, your job is to model that, right. to, help the, to help your team understand how to do it. Most of us are not raised with this. So it starts with you. I think that's, that's really important. And I think one thing that's important, especially for younger lawyers out there, that if they worry so much about the consequences of what happens if they push back on an idea that they don't think will work or a strategy they don't think will work or circumstances that they don't think um, bring out the best in them or anyone else. Um, they'll find that the exhaustion of trying to please all the time, even if you on some really deep level think it's wrong, and you know we're not talking about any generational characterizations about people wanting it hard or easy but if at the core you feel something is wrong or a mistake and you just sort of watch it go by that's as unhealthy as trying to get along to go along to keep your job or to make partner ultimately the damage it does goes far beyond you know, whether you get a good performance review or not, the damage is deep and systemic. And, and I think we've seen that a lot where people have just tried to be part of the system. And ultimately at some point, and from my own perspective, I was at a company once where there was a change in CEO. I was a senior, senior level executive and I was trying to find a leadership style that resonated with this leader and trying to lead and not only didn't it work, the criticism I got from that leader is, well, I don't even know who you are. I, it wasn't really, you know, I mean, the valid, one valid comment, I think, well, because you make it so impossible to be anybody. But I, did, I thought about that in a different way was, because I was trying to maintain where I was, I was losing my voice and losing myself. And it had far reaching future ramifications because I decided I was never gonna do that again. Regardless of what the situation was, I wasn't gonna sit by and just try to mold myself to a value system or a set of behaviors that I didn't think were right. And it was, um, it was a very debilitating time, but it also was instrumental in navigating going forward. And I think that's the, that's the message for, for, for folks in organizations and younger lawyers and lawyers that are maturing into seniority is 
if you constantly suppress the desire to speak up or to make the point for what you think is right, whether it be a case strategy, a deal strategy, or a value strategy about how the organization values its people, ultimately that will take a toll. And whatever goal, perceived goal you get to, you'll get to, but it may not, you may not be who you, who you originally wanted to be. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that a lot. You know, what you're saying, I just want to add to it, which, in, you know, this, in, especially in COVID times where you ask the question, you know, how can, how can employees or team members, you know, help themselves in this process? And I think one of the greatest things, in addition to what you just said there, which has to do with, you know, speak your truth and do what you believe is right. Um, but it's also setting boundaries. And I think it's one of the hardest things on the planet to do. So for example, so you're the, the leading partner that could possibly give you a promotion is sending emails at three o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> um, and the assumption then for many uh, others is, well, I should do that too. I need to, I need to respond immediately to his three o'clock in the morning email. And this is where boundaries become essential don't bring your phone into your let him know or her know that you don't answer emails at that hour um and you know we all work at different time frames so it's not to say that sending an email at three o'clock in the morning is the wrong thing to do craft the email plan it to go out there are great softwares uh, so software that does that just don't push send at three o'clock in the morning because then what you're doing is uh, prompting your team to work in your yeah. time frame, right? So it's not like there's one right or wrong way, but I think we have to push back uh, with with others who are pushing us to 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 do things that we don't believe in. And my, the, the, the hard part, Mark, is is that you, as a leader, you'll say that to your employees. You know, what's your responsibility in this? I think it's important that we look at the, and we can wrap up with this. We look at the um, the the real work is an essential ingredient to feeding oneself and one's family. And there's a lot of fears that come up when it comes to work. And so we don't want to lose our house. We don't, we want to be able to feed our children. And so we will squash ourselves so that we don't have to deal with these other fears. And so I think it's important that leaders understand that that is a part of the reason why people don't actually speak up. It comes out in other ways. They can't be effective in their work. Um, they can't be effective in their work, but how do you as a leader support them if, they, if they're not speaking up and saying what they need? So it's kind of like this catch 22. I think we have to give people permission. We have to help them to break the chain to see that they think that they're locked in and that they need permission to speak their truth. We have to model that and show them how to do it. Misty, this has been a fabulous conversation. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com. <laughs>